Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and get started. We're missing a lot of folks um, still, but um, we're going to go ahead and get started. There's about five people that are sick, too, so people take care of yourself, get your flu, shit, uh, flu shot, make sure you're taking care of yourself. My sister's sick. The baby had uh, RSV, and so she's, she got it from the baby. So anyway, take care of yourself as this weather keeps changing. Just a reminder, not next week, but the week after is our sponsor meeting, and then we start going to Mass together. So keep that in mind. Cindy, I have to remind you to start getting those questions together for us for Sunday. <laughs> great, great. Okay, so um, we are going to talk about the church tonight, and we have a wonderful guest with us tonight. We have Sister uh, Teresa Marie Chow Nguyen. She's a native Houstonian and a Dominican sister of Mary Immaculate Province based in Southwest Houston. She earned her doctorate in systematic theology at Catholic University of America in Washington, DC. And she is currently an assistant professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas. She's gonna speak with us tonight about the church. And I'm, I'm sure she would also be happy to answer any questions about religious life too. So in the Q&A, if there are questions about religious life, um, please feel free to uh, Take advantage of having a religious with us. So please help me welcome um, Sister Teresa. Thank you very much, Mary. And uh, thank you, all of you, for being here tonight. It's a delight to be with you. Um, I also have Sister Teresa Josephine in the back. And in good uh, Dominican custom, our tradition is whenever we go preaching, we go in twos. So one preaches and the other does the hard work of, of praying for the preacher and all those who hear, that we may hear authentically what God wants to say to each one of us. So I invite you uh, with me to take a moment of silence in which we begin with prayer. We'll recollect ourselves, remind ourselves why we're, we are here, uh, remind ourselves that we are in the presence of God, and to pray the Holy Spirit upon us. And I have on the screen here the prayer of St. Thomas Aquinas. And if, after a moment of silence, I invite you to pray that together with me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. And together we pray. Grant me, O Lord, my God, a mind to know you, a heart to see you, wisdom to find you, conduct pleasing to you, faithful perseverance in waiting for you, and a hope of finally embracing you. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. again.
take so long to get back. Um, I wonder why it's frozen. Okay, yeah, let's try it again. Yeah, this one at least oh, works. Okay. Let me change the batteries on this okay. while you're just... Thank you so much. Okay, um, so we can get started. And um, the topic today is the church. I, I love the church. So I hope by the end of today, I can convey something of that love to you. Because uh, if you are here um, for RCIA and um, either baptism or confirmation, at the end of this program, this is the church that you're seeking to enter, to, to have communion with. It's a communion, it's a family, it's the family of God. And it is the family that God has given us. This is the means of salvation um, that uh, Christ has instituted here on earth. So we will proceed, and you ha I believe you do have handouts, and it is a truncated version of um, the extra slides I, I, that I will show today. But you have all of the main slides that we will cover. I would like to work through three main points. The first is we will look at what is the church, then we'll look at traditional images of the church that we find in scripture and, and throughout tradition, and then finally we will end with the four marks of the church. Thank you. So firstly, what is the church? If we look at scripture, the Greek term for church is ekklesia, and it appears only twice in the four gospels. So in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you do not find the word church, except in Matthew. Matthew's gospel is the only gospel in which the word church is found. Um, Paul and Peter in their letters and the other parts of the New Testament, you will find many references to the church. But in the Gospels, it is found principally in Matthew 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 16 to, to 18 or 19. And this is where we find the institution of the church, Jesus establishing the church on the foundations of Peter. So I'd like to spend some time um, taking a close reading of Matthew 16, and that will give you the scriptural foundations for what the church is, and then we'll proceed with the images of the church that we find elsewhere. So, what happens in Matthew 16? This is, uh, it takes place in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus speaks to his apostles and he says, so who do you say that I am? He's asking them, who am I to you, right? So what's my identity? Who do you understand me to be? And the apostles, they begin to give answers. They say, well, some say you are John the Baptist. Um, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Meaning, we hear people say that you are a great figure, you are prophetic, you, you teach with power and authority. But Jesus hears that and says, no, 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 I'm not asking what other people say, I'm asking, who do you say I am? Now Jesus might be asking that of each one of us tonight, who am I to you? So, what happens? The silence. And then Peter, or then Simon. Simon Peter steps up and he answers. And this is the one time in scripture that Peter gives the right answer. Right? Other times, Jesus will rebuke him. But this time, it's Peter who steps up and he answers and he says this. Simon Peter said in reply, verse 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What is he saying there? He's identifying Jesus in his very essence. What is Messiah? I know you've done Christology already. Does anyone know what Messiah means or stands for? The Greek is Christos, and Christos is anointed one. The Israelites, throughout all of Israelite history, they were awaiting this anointed one. In the Old Testament, you would anoint the kings and the prophets. The anointed one was the one who would do God's, God's work. And specifically, this Messiah they were awaiting would be the one who would liberate them from the foreign powers that were oppressing Israel. So um, Peter identifies Jesus as, you are the Messiah. You are the one to liberate us. And not only that, but you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He says that, Jesus, you are divine. He gets to the heart of who Jesus is. And we know this is the right answer because Jesus commends him. So Jesus says in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. So Jesus says, you are blessed, Peter, or you are blessed, Simon. You are blessed, and why are you blessed? Because this has been revealed to you from my heavenly Father. You know this, you have this perfect answer, not because you, you didn't miss any RCIA meeting, not because you studied hard for the exams, but you know this, not through flesh and blood. It's not because you're smart, it's not because um, you're witty or, or you have your degrees, um, but rather it's because God has chosen you, he's blessed you. Okay, so it's not through flesh and blood. Now remember what's going to happen here. Right? The, the church is not found on flesh and blood. The church is found on this revelation of God. This church is a, it's, it's filled with human members, sinful members, and yet it's divinely instituted. It's based on this revelation. It's based on the love of God. So Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed. You know this, it's been revealed to you. Therefore, what next? And so, says Jesus, and so, I say to you, you are Peter. More batteries running out, I guess. You are Peter. Oh, I just have to look at the ground. Oh, that works really well. <laughs> it's it's the, the collar that, that kind of sags. So Jesus says to Simon Peter. I think I, I can do this. That will work well. Yeah. So Jesus says Simon, to Simon Peter that, um, So I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Earlier, recall that he, he referred to this man as Simon, son of Jonah. So his name is Simon. He is son of Jonah. He's not Peter. Jesus is giving Simon a new name. And this, this name giving, this name changing, is uh, customary whenever God gives a mission to someone. So in the Old Testament, you saw Abram, who was called out of the land of Ur, and given the name by God as Abraham. He became the father of faith. And then you, you had uh, Jacob, who was given the name Israel. Or later in the New Testament, you have Saul, who is given the name Paul, and he becomes the great apostle. Here, Simon is given the name Peter. Now, Peter, are there any Peters in the room? Well, Peter is not a, a 
a proper name prior to, to this. Peter is actually the word for rock. If we looked at the original text, the Aramaic says kepha, K-E-P-H-A, kepha. So the, the actual text in Aramaic would say, Simon, son of Jonah, or I say to you, you are kepha, and upon kepha, I will build my church. Jesus is doing a wordplay. So he's saying, Simon, son of Jonah, no longer will you be called Simon. You will be called rock. Why? Because you are the rock on which I build this church. There's, a, there's an intentional wordplay. Play. Kepha, you are kepha, and on this kepha. What happens, though, is we lose the wordplay in English. So from the Aramaic, you have the Greek text. And the Greek word for rock is Petra, P-E-T-R-A, Petra. So it should read, um, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, and because you are Petra, and on this Petra, I build my church. But Petra, in the Greek language, is a feminine noun. So we don't want to offend Peter's masculinity by calling him a feminine noun. Okay, so we masculinize the noun, and Petra becomes Petros. And this is where we get Peter. So in the Aramaic, it's Kepha, Kepha. In the Greek, it's Petros, Petra. And then in the English, we lose the wordplay entirely, and we get now, you are Peter and on this rock. But very clearly, Jesus is intentional in his name changing of Peter and calling Peter no longer Simon, but Rock. So I tell my students at the university, you can call him Rocky, and that would be very accurate. <laughs> but why Rock? Elsewhere, Jesus says, you don't want to build your house on sand. You want to build it on rock. Jesus builds his church on solid foundation. Rock is sturdy, it's hard. It's supposed to uphold. And Peter is to be the rock on which Jesus builds his church. So, you are Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. This is the first instance in which you find ekklesia, okay, the Greek word for church. And it's, it's translated into English as church. Uh, the closer translation would be assembly or congregation or convocation. It comes from the Greek root ek, ek kaleo, so E-K slash K-A-L-E-O, ek kaleo. So the ek is like ex, as in exit, so out of, and kaleo is call. So the assembly of the ekklesia, or the church, is the assembly that is called out of. And when we speak of calling, then we, we're referring to someone is doing some calling. There is a caller. And then we are the ones who are being called. And if it's being called X, X out of, then we're being called from one place to a new place. In the church, we are being called out of the darkness of the world into the light of the kingdom of God. And so the church is this assembly. It's this convocation of those who live in the light of God's kingdom. So this is where we find church in scripture. It's the very foundation of the church that Christ institutes on the foundation of Peter. And then the Lord continues and he says, 
and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against this church. What is he saying here? This church, which I found on the rock, which is you, the gates of the netherworld, meaning the powers of hell, will never overcome this church. Now, here we have the scriptural foundation for what the church calls the, the doctrine of indefectibility. So that's what you have there. The church will never defect. It will last to the end of time. The powers of evil, which continue to assail the church from all sides in every age, will continue to do so, but it will never overcome the church entirely. Wow, that's quite a promise. And again, recall that this is not based on flesh and blood. It's based on the revelation of God. It's Jesus' promise. So it's not that we have the perfect church. We don't. It's not that Peter is sinless. He's not. He's sinful. And yet God promises that what he institutes will continue to the end of time. Out of his love, out of divine wisdom, in which after he establishes the work of redemption, it doesn't just end with the death of Jesus on the cross, but he continues that. He continues his presence. He extends it into time to the very end of time by establishing a church. So in God's wisdom, he promises, he, he establishes his church, and he promises that it will endure. Now there, there's a contemporary quote that I'd like to share with you that gets to the kind of the heart of the, the meaning of indefectibility. And it is from Cardinal Francis George, who passed in 2015. He died of cancer. He was the Archbishop of Chicago. And in 2010, he was speaking to um, his fellow priests, newly ordained for the archdiocese. And he, he spoke to them about the cultural war. To be Christian, to be a part of this church and this world today, is to live counterculturally. It means to go against the grain. It means that when we embrace gospel values, those values go against the values of the world. And so we're going to meet up with resistance. We're fighting a cultural war. And this is the vision or the image that he, he, he gives to his young priests. And he says to them, I, I expect to die in my bed. And he did. He, he died um, uh, of cancer in his own bed. So he says, I expect to die in my bed. My successor will likely die in prison. Okay? We'll come to a point in which living your faith and your Christian values authentically might pit you against the world and the world will hate you for it. The world will, will, will imprison you for being like Christ. And when it does, guess what? That makes you all the more like Christ. And then, even worse, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. It might come to the extreme in which to live your Christian values means to be hated by the world, to the point in which uh, we're dragged into the public square and we're beaten or, or killed, and the mass of people cheer on our death because they don't like the values of Christ. Is that happening? Maybe not right here, right now, but somewhere in this world, I bet it is. Think of the, the Christians in, in the Middle East who are a, a, a very small minority in, in a non-Christian world that hates them. 
think of the, the news that we hear. Um, usually it happens on every Palm Sunday um, in which there's a bombing of a Coptic Christian church um, somewhere and, and hundreds die. So the, the hatred that Christians experience is real, but it's not something new. It's what Jesus underwent. And if that's who we're claiming to follow, if that's the baptism that we want to undergo, it's the same baptism that he underwent with his passion, death, and resurrection. But that's not the end of the story. So Colonel George continues, and he says, well, his successor, meaning the successor of the martyr, the martyred bishop, his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history. Think of what this Catholic Church is. Okay? It's existed, the story of Jesus establishing this on Peter happened 2,000 year plus years ago. The Catholic Church has survived the vicissitudes of human history. Think of, um, compare that to the great human civilizations. Think of the, the great Hellenistic civilization, the peak of philosophical thought the civilization that produced Socrates, Plato, um, Aristotle, Homer, it doesn't exist today. Think of the great Roman Empire that followed it, great military power, it's not here now. Consider the great Chinese dynasties or the kingdoms of this world. They rise and they fall, they come and they go. But Jesus promises this kingdom of God, it will endure to the end of time. It may not be a robust, huge kingdom. It may be whittled down to the very faithful few, but it will endure because Christ promises. And the words of Christ are true. If we choose to follow Christ and we choose to be faithful in the very radical way that following Christ demands us to be, then we can, we can hold firm to his promise that we're on the winning team at the end of the day the indefectibility of the church. God promises it will last to the end of time, scripturally. Back to our passage. And then we have another very significant and weighty um, verse. And Jesus says, I will give the keys of the kingdom, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. This is the passage which is the scriptural foundation for the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church to the point of infallibility. So what am I talking about there? Infallibility is this gift of the Holy Spirit. We call those charisms. It's the charism or the gift of the Holy Spirit upon the office of Peter so that when the person occupying the office of Peter as Pope, um, when he teaches, he is preserved from error. So when he speaks ex cathedra, these are Latin words, okay, so ex out of cathedra, you, it looks like cathedral, which is the, every local church, every local diocese has a cathedral. That's the main church of the diocese where the local ordinary or the bishop has his cathedra without the L. The cathedra, the Latin word simply means chair. And the chair, that's the seat of authority. It's the chair of his teaching authority. 
So whenever the, the Pope, who is also bishop, he's bishop of Rome, and he has a cathedral, it's um, St. John Lateran. Um, and if you actually visit Rome and you take a tour there, you could actually see um, that there's, there's actually a chair there. Or you can go to St. Um, or Sacred Heart here, and there's a, that's the cathedral, and you can see the cathedral chair. Um, but when the Holy Father speaks ex cathedra, meaning in his official capacity, with the fullness of his authority as the successor of St. Peter and as head of the church on earth, and he's speaking to proclaim a doctrine on faith or morals um, as binding upon the whole church, then he is preserved, guaranteed to be free of error. And again, it's not based on flesh and blood. It's not because uh, he's consulted all of the experts or he's done the research himself or he has his degrees in hand, but rather it's a, a promised gift of the Holy Spirit upon the church. Now, this, this doctrine of infallibility might seem like, wow, that's pretty extreme. The Pope can say anything and not be wrong. It, this is not something that's exercised um, officially every day. Okay. So this is when it comes to a very solemn, binding definition. The Pope will exercise um, infallibility in a formal, in a formal way. Um, but it speaks to, again, the wisdom of God. He establishes a church with the intention of the ch this church lasting to the end of time. Well, it's human beings who are, who are members of this church, running this church, we're prone to error. And if, if this message of salvation is to be kept in all of its purity, in its full form, undefiled, to the end of time, then God must guarantee that it does. And he does. This is why there is this promise of infallibility. Now note also, it's only with regard to matters of faith and morals. What is binding in terms of what we believe, or what is the correct doctrine um, pertaining to our salvation, and what is proper um, moral behavior. Not with regard to history or science. Okay? Infallibility would not be exercised there. Um, one caveat, if there are moral implications to the historical understanding or the scientific understanding, then that could fall under infallibility. But again, what God is doing is, is wanting to extend the, the grace of redemption to the end of time in its pure and complete form. And so he ensures it with this promise of infallibility. In the scriptures, uh, that passage which we read, Go back to it. In which Jesus says to Peter, I give you the keys, the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Matthew's reader or the hearers of Jesus' words here would have recognized this. It, it, it isn't the first time you find something said like that in scripture. It's found, or there's an allusion to the keys in Isaiah 22. And what happens in Isaiah 22 is we have um, Shebna, who is the master of David's household. Now, the master of the household is really the second-hand man in command. He's second only to the king. He has great authority. And that authority is represented by the key that he is given, and he wears it on his shoulder. Now, Shebna is a corrupt man, and so David casts him out. And the prophet announces God's will that someone else replace him, and it is Eliakim. 
And that is why in Isaiah 22 we read these words. I place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. This is with regard to Eliakim. What he opens, no one will shut. What he shuts, no one will open. It's an exact echo. You hear the same idea. And when the hearers of Jesus heard this, when Peter heard this, when, when the readers of Matthew's gospel saw this, they immediately understood that Jesus was giving to Peter the keys of the kingdom of God. He was given this full authority in the same way that Eliakim became the master of the palace of David. Now note also, um, some of you have Bibles, and um, you might find a different translation that differs just slightly. So perhaps it says, I will place the key, I'm sorry, um, Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What I have on the screen is, will have been bound in heaven. If you, if you, and I conferred with a, a Greek scholar for this, and um, he says um, that the, this idea of binding and loosing okay, is what is being portrayed here. The, the verb in the Greek differs, it's not simply a, a, a future tense. It's not simply Jesus saying to Peter, whatever you do on earth, we'll do in heaven. Okay, it's not that Peter ratifies, um, Peter, whatever Peter does, heaven will ratify. Okay? But rather, it's a, it's a past perfect paraphrastic, which means that um, what is bound here on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Meaning the authority that Peter exercises is an authority that flows from heaven. He does not contradict heaven. He cannot. He does not have the authority to. Okay. So what he binds on earth will have been bound in heaven. And what he looses on earth will have been loosed in heaven. There is this correlation between what happens here on earth and the authority from which it comes, which is heaven. And then what is the authority to do? Okay, so he has the authority to bind and to loose. What does that mean? Well, to loose is clearly to loosen, to permit. It's, it's the authority to forgive. It's that forgiveness of sins. It's the authority to bring back into communion those who have isolated themselves from the communion of the church. So it's this authority to forgive sin, which man does not have the power to do, but Christ gives it. It's the authority of heaven. You, you can forgive sin, you can loose. And the authority to bind, that's a teaching authority. Because what is binding? Truth is binding. And the church is a teacher of the truth. So you have in Matthew 16, this establishment of the church, and it's established on the person of Peter, who becomes the rock. And this rock is not a flesh and blood, but rather through the revelation of God himself. So that brings us through the first part, what is the church? What is this ecclesia, this gathering, this convocation that you and I are called to be a part of? Um, we see this uh, foundation laid in Matthew and we looked at the doctrines of infallibility and indefectibility. We can move then to the images of the church. And I'd like to highlight four of these images. Starting first with the idea that the church is a mystery. Okay, again, I'm, I know I'm repeating myself, but repetition helps for remembering, getting to the heart of uh, underscoring things. Um, 
The church is not simply a human institution. It's not a, a club or a human organization that we choose to join. So I like to play chess, I can join a chess club. The church does not function in the same way. Rather, the church is a divinely instituted congregation. It's, it's ultimately a mystery. It's this mystery that connects heaven and earth. So as a mystery, we cannot strip away the mystery and simply define the church. And for that reason, we find the church being explained or being expressed in, in images. And so we, we have a, a, a plethora, really, of images of the church um, in scripture and in tradition. You have here an image of um, St. Peter's Basilica, a, a huge, beautiful edifice. And um, in this photo, you have the lights shining through the, the rotunda above. That's the idea. The church is not simply a building, but rather it's the light of God's grace and love pouring into our hearts. We become the temples of God. So images of the church, keeping in mind that the church is a mystery. So the first of these is um, the image of the church as the bride of Christ. I have a different picture uh, of and. If you were to guess what is being depicted here, what would you say? What does that look like? Yeah? The Holy Family. It looks like a bird or something. Okay. So we have here uh, in the center. Is there a light on here? Oh, yes. Okay. Alicia. So we have in the center. Uh, the uh, image of a man, and he's naked, and he has his eyes closed. Around him in the back, you have animals. Okay? There's another figure in blue here, who is taking from the side of the naked man another human figure. It's actually a depiction of Genesis. And this is Genesis 1, in which God takes Eve from the side of Adam. So it's the creation of, of Eve from the rib of Adam. And um, God is there dressed in blue and, and royalty, and then um, Adam and Eve, and the animals signify it's a creation scene. Well, the rest of this depiction, so that's Eve from the side of Adam. The parallel is, again, you have a man who over here he's in slumber. In the second image, you have a man also in slumber. It's the slumber of death. And from his side, God, this figure, this haloed figure, that's another way of identifying God, halos, Jesus here, God is pulling from the side of this new Adam another figure. Now, who is coming from the side of the new Adam? It would be, from the old Adam, we have the, the Eve coming from Adam. From the new Adam, we have the new Eve. Who is the new Eve? Yes, the new Eve is the church. A more common, a more popular image would be this. The image of divine mercy. This is how Jesus revealed himself to Saint Faustina, and he asked Faustina to have this image painted. 
It would be the image that would, would shine mercy. He would look with the eyes of mercy upon the world through this image, and he has. But the idea that's being conveyed here is you have Jesus touching his heart, and from his chest come rays of light, and they are blue and red. They are to be signifying something. So blue representing water and blood flowing from um, his side that was pierced by the lance of the soldier on Calvary. And indeed, um, as a side story, um, that soldier has, is a saint. Uh, as legend has it, as he pierced the side of Christ, he was the first to peer into the sacred heart. He exposed the heart of, of the dying Christ and he saw the heart of Christ and he saw the blood and water that gushed forth. And he later had a conversion and became a saint. But the idea of the, the, the water and the blood, they represent something. What do you think they represent? Water, what would that represent? Purification. Purification, exactly. That water represents baptism. And the blood, where do we, we see blood? Right, so the blood is the blood of the Eucharist. It's the sacrament of the holy sacrifice. So from the side of Christ, we have the symbols of baptism and Eucharist. These are the symbols, these are the sacraments of our initiation into the body of Christ. These are the sacraments of the church. The church is established by the baptism of its members. It welcomes members into the church through baptism, and it nourishes its members through the Eucharist. So from the side of the dying Christ comes the new Eve, and the new Eve is the church. And in, in the same way that Eve was the bride of Adam, the church is the bride of Christ. She continues the work of Christ. She is his helpmate. She stands by his side. The church is the bride of Christ. This is found in Scripture. And we find it as particularly in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. It's a beautiful passage, and um, maybe you've heard it. Um, it's, it's a popular passage that's read at weddings because it refers to the bride and the bridegroom. And here you, you have Paul saying, he's exhorting husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, so he's telling... Well, just to be fair, if you want the full picture, prior to this verse, he says to wives, be submissive to your husbands. Okay. To our modern mindset, you might say, whoa, I don't like that. But actually, read scripture accordingly. Read scripture carefully and, um, and heed God's word. Because when Paul says, ladies, you need to be submissive to your husbands, what does he mean? Continue reading. Because he says to husbands, Love your wives. How? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her. So husbands are to love their wives to the point of dying for them. That's the kind, that, that's the kind of mutual submission that you find in marriage. Men, you must love your wives. You must protect and you must die for your wife. And wives, you submit yourself to your husband because he is the head. There's a, there's a proper order to things. And it's not, it's not an oppressive order. When it's an order of love, then there's this mutual submission between the man and the wife. And it's not simply uh, on a human level, but rather when Paul speaks this, he is referring to something much deeper. He's referring to the sacrament of Christ's love 
for his church. He dies for his bride. So Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in splendor. So Christ dies for his bride and he washes by his death. He washes his bride of all of her blemishes so that she can now radiate in splendor. So the, the, the love of husbands should bring forth the fullness and the glory and the beauty of their wives. So that the wife can be, or the church can be, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ loves the church. And the image that is used is indeed a marital image. Paul will say later on, this is the great mystery. That God would love us to this degree, he, he, would, he would love us to, to the point of wanting to unite us to him in the way a man and a woman unite to each other in marital love. That's intense. That's, that's, that's a union that, that is a, a real bodily union. And it's a, it's a bodily union that is, is life-giving and love-fulfilling. Because it is mirrored uh, upon the sacrament of the church as the bride of Christ. Second image, the church is the body of Christ. Typically, when we hear body of Christ, we think of the Eucharist, right? So if you eventually, when you, or when you get in line to receive the Holy Communion, the Eucharist, um, the Eucharist is held up and the words that are said are the body of Christ. And the recipient says, amen, I believe, let it be. Yes, I believe. You give your assent to, I believe that that is the body of Christ. So the Eucharist is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And it's the body of Christ because the members of the church receive the body of Christ. So the, the, the irony or the paradox is that what you have in Holy Communion is you have the minister, who is a member of the body of Christ, giving the body of Christ to the body of Christ. It's the... The church is the body of Christ. And again, we find this in Scripture. So in 1 Corinthians, um, Paul will say that now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of the body of Christ. And here he is speaking of a unity and diversity. Because when we see a body, a body, um, Paul will say, has many parts. And these parts do not function on their own. Rather, the sum of the parts, the whole, is what gives the parts its value and meaning. And the parts shouldn't rival against each other, says Paul, but rather they, they are united in one body. So being a part of the church does not mean doing away with who you are individually, but rather in your individuality and in, in your talents and gifts, uniting that to the one body of Christ so that we serve the body of Christ. We build up the body of Christ. We also read of the body of Christ in Ephesians, and there you have a slightly different emphasis. And the emphasis is that we are, the church is this mystical body of Christ, and it is one body because it has one head. Christ is the head of this body. It's Christ who unites us as one. And we experience this unity in a very real way every time we come to Eucharistic communion. It's the sacrament of unity. Everyone receiving of the same loaf, 
to be united in one body. We make up one Christ. Now think of the first image, the bride of Christ, and now we have the body of Christ. These aren't isolated images that are exclusive of each other. Rather, the bride comes into union with her bridegroom, and they become one body, one flesh. Right? And so the bride of Christ, united to the bridegroom, is the body of Christ. And I added a, uh, an image here of St. Therese of Lisieux because um, um, she's my patron, and, uh, and she, she, she had a very profound understanding of the body of Christ and its different functions. She was a cloistered Carmelite nun, died at the age of 24, and uh, was canonized, uh, made a saint, because she, she discovered a profound spirituality, a profound way to holiness. And it was a way that was open to everyone. Because she said, here I am, a young French girl who just is madly in love with Christ. I've given myself to him. And yet I want to be more. I want to be the best that I can for this body. So should I be the hand of Christ that ministers to the poor? Should I be the mouth of the preacher? Should I be the, the feet of the missionary going out into foreign lands? And she said, I want to do all of it because I love God and I love, I love the church. And then she contemplated this, and she found an answer. And her answer was, ah, I know what part I will be. I will be the heart. Because the beating heart, that love, encompasses all vocations, encompasses all the work that we do. So whether it be, it be great works that we do, whether it be that we become missionaries into foreign lands and preach to masses of peoples and, and do great conversions and baptize hundreds every day, or if it's tending to young children who are sick and ill, or our own family members who need our help and our attention, or picking up a piece of trash and doing it with great love, or helping a stranger on the street. Her way to holiness was about doing very simple things, very ordinary things, with extraordinary love. And that got to the heart of what it means to be holy in our everyday life. And so we can all do that. Right? You, you, you don't have to get a degree in theology um, to, to contemplate or, or, or to begin doing, building up the body of Christ and, and working on, our, on your holiness. But we can act uh, out of a love for God in everything that we do. And that's, that's the beginnings of holiness. That's making progress um, in the path to holiness. The fourth image of the church. The church is referred to also as Holy Mother. She is Holy Mother Church. St. Cyprian will say, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. Because what does a mother do? The mother is the one who gives birth. The mother nurtures. She feeds and she teaches. She disciplines. She fosters our growth. And indeed, that's what Mother Church does. She gives birth to us at the baptismal font. So of course we are born already physically, but we are born spiritually at the, the font of baptism. In baptism there is regeneration. We are born anew in the spirit. And the, the early church fathers knew this very clearly. If we went to the baptismal fonts of the ancient days, and some of them still stand in Rome, um, you could look at the, the intricate designs that are carved on these, these um, stone baptismal fonts. 
and um, they will refer to the womb of Mother Church. So we, we emerge from the baptismal font. We are born, we, we come from the womb of Mother Church. And she feeds us. She gives birth to us and she nurtures us. She feeds us with the Eucharist. She feeds us with the body of Christ so that we grow and uh, we, we grow stronger and stronger, um, nourished by the very power, the flesh and blood, the soul and divinity of Christ himself. And she teaches us. Indeed, Mother Church uh, has magisterial authority. Uh, she has a teaching authority. She teaches us the way to the truth. Now, sometimes people will say, well, I don't like that teaching. Okay, well, I didn't like my broccolis when I was little. <laughs> and it would be very arrogant of someone to say, I have a better teaching. Who would I be as a 40-something-year-old to think that I know better than a 2,000-year-old a, a tradition endowed by God with the grace of the Holy Spirit? Right, so sometimes it comes to trusting mom and dad trusting the judgment of Holy Mother Church, even when we don't quite understand it fully. So Mother Church gives birth, she nurtures, she teaches, and she will discipline. Because it's all not to be mean, but to foster our growth in the faith, in the spirit, as a loving mother would do. Fourth image, and I will spend more time on this image, and that is the image of the church as the universal sacrament of salvation. So the church is called the universal sacrament of salvation. So clearly, um, the church has to do with the business of salvation, redemption. It's the minister of, or the extension of Christ's gift of salvation to the world. And it's, it's a gift that is given to everyone. It's not exclusive to any chosen group. So we call it the universal gift. It's God's universal salvific will. He wills that all be saved. And how will they be saved? Well, the graces of that salvation are given through this universal sacrament of salvation. I want to spend more time expanding on the notion of sacrament. Um, I have an image here of um, kind of the dawning of a new day because um, the sun doesn't choose where it shines, right? It shines, it doesn't choose, I don't, uh, that's an evil person, I won't shine on the evil person. No, it's, it's, it's the sun for the entire cosmos. Um, and so uh, the canticle of Zechariah, of, which is in Luke's gospel, will say, God's tender mercy breaks upon us like, the, like a new dawn. We can wake up in the morning, you can have a really bad day, but you wake up in the morning and it's a new day, and these are new graces, and God's grace breaks upon us like a new dawn, every day. But when we speak of the church as a universal sacrament of salvation, um, we're, we're looking at the sacramental economy of the church. So what do I mean by that? The economy... The economy is the structure of things. And the structure of salvation is sacramental. So this is an image from a very old catechism book, but I, I quite like it because it conveys the meaning. At the center will always be Christ. To be Christian is always to be Christocentric. Our faith must always be centered in Jesus Christ. But how do you have contact with Jesus Christ? He walked the earth 2,000 years ago, and he's not walking the earth now. 
How do you come to, into actual contact with him? Well, we do actually have direct contact with him. And it's through his body, the church. And so you have below Christ this foundation, solid foundation on which he founds his church there in the background. And the works of the church, like streams of the graces that give salvation, flow out in the seven sacraments. We have contact with the actual body of Christ by being a part of the church, by receiving from the church the graces of salvation which come from the sacraments. The sacraments are the extension of Christ's activity, such that when a priest hears confession in the confessional, who is forgiving sin? Is it the priest who is forgiving sin? No, he's merely the minister acting in the place of Jesus Christ. But rather, what happens in that confessional is an, a, an amazing moment of grace in which Christ is forgiving sin through a human minister. But it's Christ who is forgiving sin. When someone is baptized, maybe you go to a baptism, and it's the deacon who does the baptism. So he, he's the one who pours the water on the baby, on the infants that are being baptized. He's acting as a minister, but who is baptizing? It's Christ who is baptizing. So we come into contact with the activities of Christ through his church in the sacramental works. These are tremendous gifts that God has given us so that we can have the graces of the sacraments, so that we can grow in, um, in our spiritual life, in love with God, working out our salvation. So the word uh, sacraments comes from the Latin sacramentum, and the Greek equivalent is mysterium. So the meaning of sacrament is really about mystery. This is the mystery of Christ amongst us. The Catechism of the Catholic Church defines a sacrament, and a sacrament, a standard definition is that it is a visible or outward sign of an invisible or inward grace instituted by Christ for our sanctification. Okay, so these are gifts given to us by Christ for our holiness. And they involve this internal, external, visible, invisible dimensions. So there will always be a visible sign in a sacrament. But signs do not end in themselves. So nothing of that kind of red hexagonal sign necessarily causes my automobile to come to a halt. You know what I'm referring to? Like, the stop sign is a sign, but it's not about itself, right? So the stop sign is there because it, it triggers something deeper, and that is, oh, there's a law, and I'm a law-abiding citizen, and therefore I will stop at the stop sign. Or if there's a sign, which is an arrow is a sign, so if I pointed, like, and, and I said, oh, look. The sign is not that you should just look at my finger, but rather the sign points you to the reality that the sign it wants to indicate. So the visibility of the sacrament, always involving something physical and visible, does not end in itself in the physical and visible aspect, but rather it points to a deeper reality, and that's the reality of grace. So in baptism, we have the physical reality of water which is not simply poured to cleanse the forehead of the infant that's being baptized, but rather it's symbolic of a deeper reality, and that's the reality of original sin cleansed away. All my personal sin, 
everything wrong I've done, every offense against God and man, forgiven. From an unbeliever to a child of God. From a pagan, an enemy of God, an unknower of God, to an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Right? So it's pointing to a deeper reality. But in the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of the Incarnation, God uses very real physical signs so that we can have real sensible experience. And God, through those experiences, works our inner transformation in grace. And so we have typically these seven sacraments, which always involve matter and form and this inner grace that's given, whether it be being made a child of God, incorporation into the church, or forgiveness of sins. But the church, too, is a sacrament. A little more on signs and symbols. Just watching my time. So the, the visible part of the sacrament always involves a sign, which is a symbol of something deeper. So the sign, for example, golden arches, is more than just golden arches. For me, it, as a child, it meant, it meant you know, happy meals, right? So, so a, a happy reality. Or swastika, that's not simply a, a simple sign. It, it has great meaning, right? It, it's, it's marked and marred human history. Or a sim another simple sign, you could think of good health, you could think of the forbidden fruit, or you could think of electronics, right? Yeah. So signs are visible realities that point to something deeper. And of course we have um, our flag or the Statue of Liberty that evoke in us, right? There, it's more than just a piece of cloth fluttering in the air or a statue that's erected um, on Ellis Island. But rather, there are powerful signs. They evoke in us a, a, a love for our country, our patriotism. And then we have religious signs, more than simply the wood of the cross, but the sign of our redemption. Or this ultimate sign, more than just a wafer that doesn't have much taste. It's the body and blood of Christ. And so the, there are signs and symbols at work in our faith. And that's what sacraments are. They are, they are symbols affecting God's work in us. And the church itself is a sign. That's where, that's, that's where I'm going with this, right? So the church itself is a sign. And we read this, it was in your catechism as well. Um, Vatican II has a document called Lumen Gentium. And it starts out, the title uh, Lumen Gentium is Light of the Nations. And it's a, it's a document about the church entitled Light of the Nations. But who is the light of the nations? It's not the church. Surprise, surprise. Right? Isn't it a document about the church? Yes. And it's called Lumen Gentium? Yes. Is Lumen Gentium the light of the nations the church? No. The church is not the light of the nations. But rather, look at the opening lines. Christ is the light of the nations. It's the light of Christ that shines upon the church. If we kept reading, we would see that Christ is the light, the ultimate light. And the church is merely the reflection of that light. And so, as a reflection, the church is like a sacrament. It's the sacrament of Christ. 
So, Lumen Gentium Cum Sit Christi is the Latin, or Christ is the light of the nations. He says in the scriptures, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's Christ who is the light. And we celebrate this in a very clear way, and, um, and hopefully you'll celebrate it in a very special way uh, on Easter Vigil. Because Easter Vigil is the culmination of all of the liturgical celebrations um, of the liturgical year, uh, the culmination of our faith. And what happens there? On Easter Vigil, all, and it starts very late in the evening because it must be dark, and all the lights go out. There, there are no lights at all. And one fire is made, and it's blessed. And from that fire, there's one huge, beautiful Paschal candle, which is lit. And the Paschal candle represents Christ. And this is the light of Christ. So the, uh, the presider, the celebrant, representing Christ, carries this light from outside in the darkness into the church. And as he goes, he will say, Lumen Christi, which is light of Christ. And everyone answers, Deo gratias, thanks be to God. This is the light of Christ which will dispel the darkness. And literally all the lights are out. There are no lights on. It's, it's nice if it's really pitch black because that's the, that's the purpose and meaning. There's only one light. It's the light of Christ. But what happens? As the procession go, continues and the, 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 the presider um, enters into the church, the, that light is shared. So from one candle, everyone else has their smaller candles, and the light is passed from the one candle, which is the light of Christ, and everyone lights up their candle. You do not take out your lighter, right? So you want the light of Christ. And this light is shared until the entire church is lit up by the light of Christ. This is the light of Christ dispelling the darkness of the world. This is the meaning of what we celebrate at the Easter Vigil, this resurrection, this light bursting forth in the darkness. And this is what the church is to be. The church is to be lit up. It's supposed to reflect the light of God, the light of Christ, so that it can light up the world with the radiance of God. Lima Jensen will say, the church in Christ is in the nature of sacrament, a sign and instrument, that is, of communion with God and of the unity of all man. And then it uses this image of the Mysterium Lunae, of the full moon. I love full moons. It might be an Asian thing, I don't know. We like, we, you know, we have the Lunar Moon Festival. We, we love full moons and we like to sip tea and look at the moon. Do you do that? You don't do that. Well, give it a try because it's, it's, it's an amazing experience, right? So what happens on full moons? You have this huge, refulgent, radiant moon. It's glowing, it's, it's hanging in the sky, and it's just beautiful. It's not the sun, it's the moon. But what makes the moon bright and radiant on full moons? It's reflect, it doesn't have its own light, but rather it's reflecting the light of the sun. The church is to be the Mysterium Lunae. It's supposed to be the sacrament of Christ. It reflects, it does not have its own source of glory. It's not divine, but it reflects the light and the divinity and the glory of Christ. And it does so to light up the sky and the world. And uh, this is an, an image of the interior of Saint-Chapelle in Paris, uh, a small but magnificent chapel. 
because the walls are all practically stained glass. And the stained glass isn't so great if you don't have light shining through, right? But in, when it's, it's daytime and the light is gushing in on, on every corner, every angle, the entire chapel lights up and you see the colors just kind of dancing on, on, the, on the walls and on the floor and on the ceiling and it's magnificent. But it's magnificent not because of itself. What makes it beautiful and radiant is the light that shines through it. And that's, that's also what it means to be a saint. The saints don't have their own glory. They don't rival with the glory of Christ. They don't take away from the glory of God when you love the saints. But rather, the saints are holy, they're radiant, because they, they're so transparent that the light of God penetrates through them. The, the light of God shines through them, and we see the beauty of God in their lives, as unique and individual as they all are. Christ himself is shining forth in the saints. This, the saints are saints because they, they bear the face of Christ. So at one point in uh, his public ministry, um, Jesus says to his apostles, I'm going to leave you. And um, um, one of the apostles says, oh, but where are you going? And Jesus says, I'm going to my father. And then Philip, it's Philip who says, the father, show us the father. We want to see the father. Let me go with you. And um, Jesus says, no, no. Have you been with me all this time and you still don't understand? Whoever sees me sees the Father. You don't have to go anywhere to see the Father. Actually, he, he doesn't have a human face for you to see. But rather, I am the face of the Father. In other words, Jesus, in another sense, is a sacrament of the Father. He is the sign and symbol that points to a deeper reality. The incarnation points to the heart of God exposed for us. He reveals to us the Father's love for us. So it's on the reality of Jesus as the primordial, the first, the fundamental sacrament. He is the sacrament of God, and it's from him being the sacrament of God that the church becomes the sacrament of Christ. And the church, as the sacrament of Christ, gives us the seven sacraments. And these are precious gifts. God, God knows what we need, and he gives it to us. Right? So, um, and it, take, for example, the sacrament of reconciliation. If there's something in my, on my conscience and I'm not at peace, right? God is awaiting me in a very real way. And I can come to the confessional and seek out that sacrament, seek out his forgiveness in a very real, concrete, sensible way, right? So we have the seven sacraments, that's for sure. But the seven sacraments are sacraments because the church is a sacrament. And the church is a sacrament because first, we have the first sacrament, the primordial sacrament, which is Jesus Christ, the sacrament of God. And in that sense, we can understand the church as a universal sacrament of salvation. It's to be this instrument of the light of Christ shining upon the entire world. Okay, so um, last section now, and we will um, speed through this. We have the four marks of the church, and these are, um, you, you hear of these, especially in the creed. So the four marks of the church, they are one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. What does this mean? Well, firstly, the, the first mark is one. 
meaning the church is one. And this oneness, this unity, is founded on the reality of the Blessed Trinity. What makes Christianity unlike any other religion? Okay? Because otherwise you get into trouble here if you say, well, we believe in one God. Sure. So does Islam. Their God is Allah. So does Israel. The Jewish God is Yahweh. The Christian God is the God of Jesus Christ. And guess what? We all trace ourselves back to Abraham. We are all Abrahamic religions. So is it possible that we're just worshiping the same God and we call him by different names? No, we're not just worshiping the same God. What makes the Christian God different, uniquely different? It's the reality, this new revelation that we get in Jesus Christ, and that is actually God, he's one, and yet he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is our Father. That is unheard of. Um, I mean, this is why they, they wanted to stone Jesus, right? He dared to call God Father. And this would be unheard of in Islam because uh, Allah is utter mystery. He's all-powerful. You don't assume to call Allah your father, ever. No, you bow down and you touch your head to the ground and worship. But the Christian God is different. He comes and he reveals himself. He comes as one of us in the incarnation, and he reveals himself as three. So the Christian religion is unique. It's, it is an Abrahamic religion, but the revelation comes to a fullness that you do not find in any other religion. The mystery of the, the Trinity is at the heart of the Christian faith, and it's also at the heart of the church. The church, which is, which is this unity in diversity, this unity in plurality, it is so, it is one church because it is founded on the mystery of the unity of the Trinity, God as three in one. I'm going to pass. Okay. So, um, this unity in the church is, is threefold. There's a unity of faith, of worship, and of leadership. Meaning we share one faith. We profess one faith. When in, in the Holy Eucharist, in Mass, we, we recite the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. We recite that in unison, in one voice. We are professing the same faith. And it's not just the faith of St. Michael's congregation here, but it's the faith of the apostles from the very beginning, the very first Christians. We profess the same faith. We're unified in our faith. We're unified in our liturgy, in our worship, in our sacraments. You can go to any country and find a Catholic church, and it will be the same mass, though you not in a, a familiar language. It may be in a foreign language, but it will be a familiar mass because we share the same worship. And we have one unique head, one leader, a clear, visible point of unity in the Holy Father, who is the head of this universal church. So we see that the Pope is important because his ministry is uh, a ministry of unity. He preserves this unity. For the sake of time, I'm going to, um, to speed forward. Um, the second mark is the mark of holiness. What makes the church holy? Because clearly, you just have to read the news, and you see there's a lot of unholiness, a lot of evil um, going on in the church. And that's not to be denied. So the source of the holiness of the church is not necessarily in its members, but the, the holiness is from a higher source. The source of holiness is the head of the church, 
Jesus Christ, who washes his bride with his blood and water from his side. So the church is indeed truly holy because it has Christ as its head, though it has sinful members. But these members are on the path to holiness. They're on the path to sanctification. And some of them have actually reached that holiness. The saints. The church is holy because its members are holy. Each one of us, as we live our daily lives, our ordinary lives, in in a grace-filled, faithful way, we're living out holiness, and we're progressing in holiness. In baptism, in baptism, when the Spirit comes to dwell within us, it activates powers of our soul. And I, I call them powers because it's like, like our organs of our bodies have powers. So the eyeball has the power to see. It's a, it has the power of sight. Well, what powers do your soul have? The powers of your soul are the, your intellect and your will. So by my intellect, I know mathematics, I know science, I know some philosophy, some theology. That's natural knowledge. But when the Holy Spirit acts upon my intellect and my will, it activates a power that I didn't have before. And that's the ability to believe in God, to hope in God, and to love God, which did not exist before in a new way, because now it's the Spirit activating it. So these infused virtues, theological virtues, now I can relate to God in faith, hope, and love. So we've gone through that. The third mark is the mark of Catholicity. The church is one holy and Catholic. Catholic is the word for universal. If we parse um, the Greek uh, roots, kata polos, kata accordingly, polos, according to the whole. So the, the church is universal. And we see this in the mission of the church. Christ, before he ascended into heaven, said to the apostles, go to the ends of the earth and preach the good news. So the mission of the church is to reach to every corner of human existence. And the fourth mark of the church is the the mark of apostolicity. The church is apostolic. What do we mean by this? It is threefold. Apostolicity is, firstly, because the church is founded on the foundations of the apostles. They provide the, the foundations, that direct contact with Jesus. And it is their teaching that we continue. It's their teaching that, that, um, that the church preserves and teaches. It's that the same apostolic faith that we profess. And then very importantly is apostolic succession. What is apostolic succession? It is the unbroken line of lineage from the first 12 apostles to their successors in the bishops today. Meaning every bishop in the Catholic Church today can trace himself directly back to the original apostles. And we see this clearly with the current bishop of Rome, the Pope. The Pope is the 266th bishop of Rome meaning there is an unbroken line of succession between the original apostles and present day. This is important because it guarantees that continuity with the first church of Christ, the church of Christ, the one Christ founded. And so in the creed, we profess to believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church, credo unum sanctum catholicum et apostolicum ecclesiam, We profess faith in in this church, 
Why? It makes sense to profess faith in God. But we profess faith in this church because this is part of the, the mystery of our faith. This is the way God gives himself to us. And how do you identify which is the authentic church? Because apparently Christ only founded one. And you look around today and there's a plethora of churches there. You can't even count them all. How do you know which is the original one? This is the question that St. John Henry Newman asked. He's a, a brand new canonized saint. He was canonized October 13th. Um, and he, he's, a, he's a really a modern church father because um, he was a great Anglican man. He was a great Oxford man, highly educated, very cultured. And um, he, had, he had no inclination towards the Catholic Church, but he submitted himself to the truth. And he asked, well, where do I find this, the Church of Christ as professed by the apostles, this church that is one holy Catholic and apostolic? That's your litmus test, okay? That's the church that Christ founded. You look for the four marks, the characteristics of the first original church. And he, he asked this question and he sought out um, intellectually, seeking out, well, he did all of the research, and then he found in the church fathers, he asked, well, if the church fathers like Augustine or Jer Jerome or Athanasius were walking around Oxford today, where would they go to Mass? Where would they recognize the Church of Christ? And he, in his heart of hearts, in all honesty, he said, hmm, it would be St. Clement, which was a Catholic church in, in, in Oxford. So here he is, a great Oxford clergyman, famous. Um, hundreds of people would pack into the Church of St. Mary's um, to hear him preach. And yet he stepped down against the, the eyes of the world looking at him. And he asked for communion with this one holy Catholic apostolic church, which he found in the Roman Catholic communion. So I leave you with the words of Pope Benedict, uh, who in a Wednesday audience in 2006, he, he said this. He said, there's a slogan that was popular some, some years back, and it was, Jesus, yes, church, no. Well, this slogan is totally inconceivable with the intention of Christ. Christ, he intends the church. Okay? He, he founded the church. The individually, individualistically chosen Jesus is an imaginary Jesus. Benedict will say that you cannot say, yes, Jesus, no church. If we love the church, then we will love the body. I'm sorry, if we love Jesus, if we love Christ, we will love the body of Christ. We will want membership. We want communion. We will want to be a part of the body of Christ. Okay. So uh, there are a few minutes left for questions, if you would like to pose any questions. I can ask the questions if you don't have questions. <laughs> I, give, I give exams all the time. Pop quizzes. Do you have any quandaries about the church? Um, reservations about this church based in Rome? Here in Houston? Yes. So, so the church is one, but it has lots of different orders. How does, that, how does that work? So the, the structure of the church is, yes, indeed, the church is one. But the church will, there's a communion between all of these local churches. 
So there's a church here, St. Michael's. Uh, there's a church closer to my convent, St. Thomas More. And yet these churches do not function autonomously. Rather, they recognize one head. And the, immediate, the immediacy of that is these parishes, local churches, are organized into a local diocese so that your pastor here is in communion with the pastor at St. Thomas More, and they're under one head, the local ordinary, who is Cardinal DiNardo. Cardinal DiNardo is not the total head honcho. Rather, he works in communion with the other bishops in the United States of America, and they recognize themselves in communion to be in communion with Rome. So there is clearly a, a hierarchy, there is a structure, but even the word hierarchy there, hierarchy in the context of order, but hiero is, is the word for holy or sacred. Archie, rule. There's, there's, a, there's a holy order here. There's an orderness. And we need to identify ourselves. We're not simply a local church. So when you undergo baptism in maybe St. Michael's Church here, do you belong to St. Michael's? Well, yes, we hope you are parishioners here and you are active in this church, but you are not exclusively, you don't belong exclusively to St. Michael's. You belong to the kingdom of God. And there's a communion that happens. Such that I haven't been to St. Michael's in, I visited maybe 10 years ago. I haven't been here in a very long time. But I can come here and, and this is my home too. It's the house of God. The unity of the church is amazing because um, think, we, we don't really know each other. I, I don't actually know your names, I'm sorry. You know my name, or I hope you do. Um, but we don't really know each other. And yet, in our, in our faith, in our communion of faith, we're actually related to each other in a way that's, it's, it's the saying, um, um, well, it's, it's the altered saying, it's water that runs deeper than blood, right? The waters of baptism connect us, unite us in a deeper way than even kinship because we're united in grace. And so we want to always acknowledge that we are in communion with the broader communion, with this one church, which its head is in Rome. So you don't want to isolate yourself from the larger communion. And even the parishes here will not function as an autonomous um, parish or, or local church. Good question, thank you. Yes. So, It's correct, though, to say, I mean, I'm thinking it's correct from to say, no, he is male. This is the, with the apostles, you know, that witnessed and God or Jesus or God or Jesus. Yeah. Okay, uh, that's an excellent question and very pertinent to um, societal concerns today. Uh, I would say, firstly, though, that God, okay, male or female, man and woman, is the distinction that we have. Um, for, um, well, here we're referring to really human beings. Um, and sexual differentiation, you know, appears in our bodies. God is not bodily. So God is neither male nor female. Okay, so God is not bodily. But, clearly, the revelation that Jesus brings us is that God is Father. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, let me back up. Caveat, obviously, Jesus in the Incarnation, came as a man. So he is man. Jesus is man. But when it comes to God, God is spiritual. 
And as spirit, he doesn't have a body, so he is neither male nor female. But rather, when God creates human beings in Genesis 1 or 2, um, and he says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man, or let us make human beings in our image. Male and female, he created them. I'll repeat. Let us make man in our image. Male and female. So God is saying, I'm going to create these human beings, and they are going to bear my image. What is my image? Male and female, he created them. Both men and women bear the image of God. So is, is God male, man or woman? He's not, because he's not physical. Does he have masculine and feminine qualities? Yes, he does. And in our masculinity, in being man and woman, we image God. What does that mean? Well, there's this complementarity. There's, there's, there's man alone does not image God. Woman alone does not image God. But rather, man and women together image God. This social dynamic of being human, no one suffices to be singular, individual, autonomous on their own. We need each other um, as man and woman. But when it comes to God as spiritual, God is Father. We associate Father with manhood. But fatherhood involves manhood, but it, it transcends manhood because it's not masculine. What is, it? is that part of fatherhood? The Father is the principle of all things. He is a principle without principle. He's the source of all. And that's what it means to be father. Human fatherhood is derivative of divine fatherhood. Does that help or does that, does that make it more difficult? Sure. Uh, can I take more time? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for the question. So I was actually born and raised here in Houston, um, North Houston, uh, and um, I grew up knowing the the Dominican sisters, the Vietnamese sisters. Um, my parents were. My mother was a convert. Um, my father was a cradle Catholic, but um, um, my mother converted before marrying my father. She was very, very ardent in her faith. And so my parents were always active at church. And um, part of that meant um, they uh, became very close friends with the sisters and the priests. So I always grew up with the sisters in my house, um, visiting all the time. Or my parents would, would drop us off for CCE and they wouldn't pick us up because the sisters would take us home and stay and eat and hang out. So I grew up with the sisters. And um, I never actually thought or really thought that I wanted to become a sister because um, I was kind of academically inclined and I wanted, I, I had the ambitions of, you know, wanting to uh, excel um, in, in worldly ways. Um, so I didn't really truly contemplate my vocation, um, though my sister did. So my older sister is also a Dominican sister. And um, my sister entered, um, and um, about four years later, I was kind of at the, uh, I was still in high school, but I, I thought, well, it wouldn't hurt to give it a try. So I entered the convent um, over uh, the summer for a few weeks. I stayed in a, a come and see program to experience the life in the convent. And to my surprise, I found, wow, this is something I'm really miserable at. Right? I was really good at some things, um, 
in my worldly life, uh, at school, in academics, doing well, um, and competing in different ways. But when I entered the convent, I, I wasn't good at you know, being quiet, focusing and praying. I, I wasn't good at it. But even though I wasn't good at it, there was something very appealing about it. Like, I didn't feel bad that I was so bad at it, but rather, I wanted to get better at it. I, I wanted to do what, what they were doing. I wanted to have a relationship with Jesus. Um, and it seemed like people here did. And they were happy, and they were joyful. And I thought, wow, I, I want something in the world there, but something here is, is drawing my heart too. Um, but I wasn't ready to give everything up. Um, on my sister's investiture, when she received her habit, um, I was sitting in the very last pew. So, good Catholic, last pew. <laughs> and, um, and you'd think I wouldn't be able to see anything. Um, so there I was sitting, and everything was happening in the sanctuary where the sisters were getting, um, their, they were being invested, they, were, they would enter without their bell, and yet at the end of the ceremony, they would have their bell on, right? And they're all facing the altar. At the end, they stand up, they turn around, and everyone claps um, to congratulate them. And as, as they're doing that, as they turn around, I could see my sister straight on. It was like through all of the heads and all of the, all of the bobbing, I saw my sister directly. And, and I saw her as, that's not her. She's transformed. What has happened? And, and that was when um, I knew that um, this is what I had to do myself, um, that God was, God was calling me. And um, it was funny because typically the, the ones, uh, the sisters who are undergoing uh, who are in the right would be the ones who shed tears. But here I am in the back view, I'm just bawling, I'm crying. And um, at the end of the Mass, the sisters are like, oh, it's okay, you're not losing your sister. <laughs> That's not the point. <laughs> I'm losing myself. <laughs> and so um, I, I, I applied, I asked to enter, and, um, and I've never had a regret. Um, and it's, it's a discovery every day of the depths of God's love. And he opens new doors, and um, and you, you discover uh, the mystery of life and the beauty of it. And part of that is is um, is the ministry that we do, um, coming into contact with souls. Um, I love teaching. I, I love speaking about the Lord. I, I love seeing um, hearts open up to God's love, and it's very fulfilling. And then um, and that's what I relish about ministry. And then what I relish about uh, my religious life are the quiet moments in which I'm just there with the Lord in the chapel in prayer and I'm united to Him. I imagine um, that married couples, you have these moments of, of quiet communion with each other when, when you're deeply in love. And it doesn't have to be you know, speaking many words or, or really doing much, but it's, it's a presence that's real and abiding and edifying and it builds you up. And God wants that for all of us. We're his bride, right? If we're members of the church, we're his bride. He, he, he'll woo your soul, and he'll unite you to him in every walk of life. That's what we have in the saints. So we give praise for that. Thank you.